So this weekend, we're going to start a brand new sermon series called A Heart Check. And we're going to look at, throughout this series, the heart of King David. Uh, I don't know how many of you know what this is. Any of you know what this is an image of? Any of you? A few of you know what this is an image of? Uh, This is the image of your heart, or not your heart, but a heart. This is an echocardiogram, right? And so it's looking at the chambers of the heart. If you can see the blue and the red in some of those images, um, I, as I was reading up on it, and someone told me this last night, the blue is the non-oxygenated blood and the red is the oxygenated blood. And, and when you have an echocardiogram done, what you're doing is, is you're getting something done that monitors and reveals your heart so that you can see the size of it, the strength of it, You can see if there's any defects in your heart, if there are blood clots, how the blood is flowing and and what the rhythm of the heart is like. In fact, sometimes this is done alongside of or with something that's called a stress test where they put monitors on you and then they have you on a treadmill and you're running or walking or jogging and and they're trying to see what's going on with your heart under stress. They're trying to see is the rhythm of your heart strong even when there's stress put upon your heart. That's what we're going to talk about throughout this series, the strength of our heart. Because if our heart's not strong, we can have strokes or heart attacks, heart failure, irregular heartbeats, which is why there are actually some people who have to wear something like this. Anyone know what that is? It's a pacemaker, right? And so there are individuals who, because of irregular heartbeats, they have to have a surgery done where they make a cut, usually by the shoulder, and they put the device in, and they take one of those electrical lines, and they run it down through one of the veins in your body into your heart or near your heart, and then they have some electrical devices near that that monitor your heart, and it can send messages back to the doctors of what's going on in your heart to detect the irregular heartbeats. Because if your heartbeat is irregular, it affects the rest of your life because your heart affects your life. And that's what we're going to look at over this series is, is the strength of our heart and how you and I, we need to have a healthy heart, not just physically, but spiritually, we need to have a healthy heart. God throughout his scriptures is concerned with the state of his people's heart because when it uses the heart, when scripture uses the heart, what it's talking about is the seed of emotion, the seed of motive, the seed of life, our attitudes which lead to actions and morality. And he's looking at our heart. Like this is why God talks about the heart of Pharaoh, a heart that was hardened. Or the heart of God's people who are made in the image of God where he says things like, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Or God knows and searches the heart. Or out of our heart flows sinful desires. Or we heard in our gospel reading that it is out of the heart that is flowing rivers of living water. He is concerned with our heart. And so at the foundational level for this sermon series is this from this verse from Acts chapter 13, verse 22. We hear these words. It says, when he, God, had removed him, Saul, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, would you read these words with me? I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Notice how he describes David. 
And that's who we're going to look at over these next few weeks, is what did the heart of David look like? Why was it so significant that David had a heart after the Lord? And then what does it mean for us to have a heart after the Lord? What does that look like? As a mom or a dad, as a husband or a wife, as a boss or an employee, as a neighbor, what does that mean as a child of God to have a heart after the Lord? So today we're going to look at it in, in what happens in the life of King David. So I want to encourage you, we're going to look at it in First Samuel chapter 16. You can find it in the Bibles in front of you on page 238 if you want to follow along. Page 238, 1 Samuel chapter 16. But I want to give you the backstory of why David was even necessary. See, the people of God, when they had come into the promised land, into the land of Israel, they came there not necessarily as a great nation. In fact, I think sometimes we get that image of they were a nation, they always had a king, they had an army, and they were powerful, and that's not how they entered the land. If you read Joshua and how they entered the land and, and defeated Jericho and, and their conquest of the land, and then you read the book of Judges and, and, and the ups and downs of life that they had under the judges and in their sinful nature, uh, there was a theme that ran along in the book of Judges that says, at that time, Israel had no king. In fact, Israel wasn't a nation. They were basically a tribal confederacy. So think the United States of America, the states, without the one-one government system, where every state kind of operates on its own. And then if somebody attacks that state, they might ask a neighboring state, hey, would you come and help us out? It's that kind of a system. It's not a nation, it's a tribal confederacy. And so Israel doesn't like this because they're looking at the enemies all around them that they failed to drive out of the land as they were told, drive them out of the land. And now these enemies are becoming really pesky. And so they start saying, we need a king, like every other nation. And Samuel gets upset about this because he is the, the priest at that time and, and he goes to God and goes, God, they have rejected me. They keep asking for a king like every other nation. And God said, they have not rejected you. They've rejected me. See, there were two problems with the request that was made by the people of Israel. Number one, they wanted a king. But they already had a king. Who was their king? God was. They didn't need a king because they had one. The second problem was the second half of their request. We want a king so that we can be like every other nation. Well, every other nation was a pagan nation that didn't worship the Lord. And God didn't want them that for them either. He says, fine, you want a king? We'll give you a king. And so they anoint Saul. Samuel anoints Saul as king. Samuel was described as a tall and handsome man, and, and he is anointed king, and it says, as he is anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9, that God gave Saul another heart. God changed Saul's heart to be after the Lord, but that change didn't last long. And Saul began to do his own things, to offer ungodly sacrifices, to do things his way, to not listen to Samuel, to not listen to the Lord, but to listen to himself. And in doing so, that sin drove a wedge between him and God because that's what sin does. Sin seeks to drive a wedge between you and God. And Saul embraced that sin. 
To the point where finally after two years, only two years of ruling as king, God says, I have rejected Saul as my king. It took two years for God to do that. I've rejected him as king. Because you can't lead my people if you can't follow me. You need to follow me first, and then you can lead the people that I have given to you. And so God rejects Saul but an interesting fact is, is God rejected Saul after two years on the throne. Do you know how long Saul reigned as king in Israel? Forty years. Thirty-eight more years Saul reigned as king. And in the midst of this, we hear these words in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13. It said, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God for which he commanded you. For then, meaning if you had kept the commands, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Well, Saul's kingdom continues for 40 years, which means really, who was the one that was truly punished by this? It was Saul's son, Jonathan. Because Saul reigns on the throne, the punishment is you will not have a dynasty, meaning your son and his son and his son after him won't be king. Instead, I will choose somebody else who will have a dynasty instead. Says he won't, and we'll look at Jonathan in a few weeks and see where Jonathan's heart was and his life was in the midst of all of this. He goes, but now your kingdom shall not continue, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You see what the Lord was looking for again? Said, I'm looking for a king who is after my heart because it is only that king that can rule my people. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see Samuel enacting what God has already declared that he is going to find someone, a new someone who will be king. You can follow along in verse one if you have your Bibles open in front of you. It says this, and then the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And from this time forward, Saul decreases so that David can increase. In fact, as we look at the rest of 1 Samuel, because the rest of 1 Samuel is, is how David, or Saul reigns as king, you will see Saul decreasing so that David might increase. And every single narrative is basically a, a descriptive narrative of the heart of Saul versus the heart of David. It says, and Samuel said, well, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Uh, if you read the life of Saul, the way that Saul ruled, Saul ruled with two characteristics, fear and paranoia. And that is never a good way to lead through fear and paranoia. But that's Saul's heart. And so Samuel goes, well, if Saul finds out that I've gone somewhere that I don't normally go, his fear and paranoia is going to drive him to kill me. So this isn't going to work out well. And so the Lord says, well, take a heifer with you and say, I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, this is not God telling Saul, deceive, or Samuel, deceive Saul. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I actually want you to go and sacrifice, but along with sacrificing, here's what else I want you to do. And he says, invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet Samuel, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? 
The reason they ask this question is because uh, at this time, if a priest or Samuel kind of functioned as a priest, a prophet, uh, some even say the last judge of Israel, uh, a holdover from the book of Judges, came, they usually came in one of two ways, either with judgment and cursing, or they came with blessing and peace. So the people are like, which way did you come? Did we do something wrong? Did we mess up? Is God angry with us? Or did you come peaceably to bless us? And Samuel goes, I came peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And Samuel sees the oldest son, probably tall in stature and strong, and goes, this has to be the one. It must be him. But the Lord said to Samuel, and this is really important, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before the Lord. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. See, Samuel and, and Jesse were looking on the outward appearance. Thinking, this has to be the one. They're tall, they're strong, they're capable, they're experienced. It must be them. But God says, that's, that's not what I look at. Because all too often for us, appearances, and not just physically on the outside, but a display of our life, the outward appearance of our life, appearances can be very deceptive. Did you remember from Snow White, the mirror on the wall, and, and the queen would look into the mirror and go, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest in this land of all? Remember that? Because what was she wanting? She wanted to be the fairest because by being the fairest, she deserved to rule. And all too often, that's what we look for. We look for the fairest, the brightest, the strongest, the best, the most charismatic, those that display the best characteristics that we think are important to be successful. And God says, you know what? I see right through that. Because it's not your outward exterior is what he says. It's not your appearance on the outside that I look at, but it's what's on the inside. Saul himself tried to put on a good face, but he didn't put on a new heart. And because he didn't put on a new heart, it didn't matter what kind of face he had because it mattered what was on his heart. In fact, the exact translation of this in the Hebrew might say, it says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the eye, but the Lord looks on the heart. The word in Hebrew is eye. He says he sees what the eye can see. He sees the eye, the outward, but he doesn't see the heart. See, you and I, we are too oftenly impressed by things that don't impress God. You ever think about that? That all too often, you and I, we are impressed by things that don't impress God. In fact, I hate to tell you this, no matter how accomplished you ever become in your life, you will never impress God. Because it's God that impresses us. And it's God who impresses upon us. 
He impresses his word on us, his spirit on us, his law on us, his grace on us, his love on us, his forgiveness on us. You see, we oftentimes think if I can change my outward appearance, then people will believe that that's what's on the inside. But God says, I am not fooled by the outward appearance. I already know what's on the inside. Oftentimes in this world, we cheer charisma, but God says, I care less about charisma and more about character. Because your charisma, your gifts, your abilities will only get you so far, but it is your character that holds you there. Because people see right through it, eventually, in the long run. And God says, I'm not looking at the outward appearance. I don't care about that. I want to see the heart. And so he continues in verse 11, he says to Samuel says to Jesse, are these all your sons? And Jesse says, well, there remains yet the youngest. That word can also mean the most insignificant. But behold, uh, he's just keeping sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, well, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Do you notice David isn't even included? Jesse completely forgets about David. Do you notice so far, and the only reason we can call him David is because we know who this is? They don't even name David until verse 13. So if you read through this section, David's name isn't even used till verse 13 because David is a nobody from nowhere doing a seemingly nothing job that nobody notices and cares about. And what a great reminder that is for us because I believe that there are times where you can feel like you are a nobody doing a seemingly nothing job in the middle of nowhere that no one notices, but do you know that God does? God sees it. God knows what you are doing, and God is preparing you for the task that he has in front of you, even if you are a seemingly nobody from nowhere doing seemingly nothing that nobody is ever noticing. God does, and he does in the life of David, a man who's not even named and completely forgotten about in a field shepherding sheep. And Samuel says, bring him here. And so he sent and he brought him in, And as he did, the Lord said to Samuel, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. So then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Do you know, it is who God appoints that he anoints, not who we do. It's not about what we choose, but what God chooses. And when God chooses and God appoints, it's that person that God anoints, not us. In fact, do you notice in this text, David isn't chosen because of David. David is chosen because of God. David has not impressed God with anything. It's not like God goes to Samuel, hey, Samuel, you know, I think this is the guy because I saw him and he does a really good job playing the harp and he was really great with the sheep and very tender with them and I saw him use that sling thing and I know that's going to be important in a few years, so why don't we choose him? No, God doesn't say any of that. God doesn't choose David because of David. God chooses David because of God. And God chooses you, not because of you, but God chooses you because of God. Because God is doing a work in your life. God is doing a work on your heart. And God is using you and preparing you for the task that God has in front of you, not because of you, but because of God. It's an amazing act of grace that God chooses David because God chooses not by earthly and worldly criteria, but by his own set of criteria. 
And then that lasting change that Saul didn't have, but David does, is only possible because of what happens in verse 13. And it says, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. It's the Spirit of the Lord that changed David's heart and molded David to be the king that God wanted David to be, a king whose heart was after the Lord. And as I was reading this text uh, this time through and, and thinking about all of the things that go along with the anointing of the king, I realized that it wasn't what was said in this text that was so significant, but what was missing from this text was just as significant. You see, if you keep reading in the text, right after verse 13, it goes on, it talks about how the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and Saul is reigning in the temple, and and talks about Saul's life, and then you go to Goliath in the next chapter. Do you notice what you don't find right after David is anointed king of Israel? What's this? If the king dies and the prince takes to the throne, what do they usually do for the prince? They throw a party, don't they? Coronation parade, huge celebration. There's a brand new king. In a presidential election, when the two candidates are running and, and they're, they're sitting in their, their headquarters with all of their, uh, the people who support them, and, and finally with one concedes to the other that, you know, I've lost the election, you've won the election. As soon as that, that concession is given and the other one knows that they're elected to be the next president, what do the people do? They celebrate, there's confetti, there's music, there's a great celebration. And David is anointed king, and what do they do? David goes back to the sheep. (laughs) Could you imagine that? Walking back to the sheep going, what just happened? Like, I don't get that. But I guess I have some sheep to take care of and make sure I'm going to protect them. Do you know, it is decades before David becomes king. Decades. Do you know David doesn't even get crowned king until we get to 2 Samuel? That's how long it is. Why is that so significant? It's so significant because the question becomes, well, why did God wait so long for David to become king? And I believe the answer is, and we're going to see this over the next few weeks as we walk through 1 Samuel and and look at the life of David, God was preparing David's heart to be the king that God wanted David to be. He was saying, I'm going to prepare your heart first, and then you will be king. And there are times where God does that for us, where he delays for us the thing that he knows he's going to give us because he's preparing us for the task that is ahead of us. So that we can understand it is okay to be a seemingly no one from nowhere doing a seemingly nothing task, but if God is working on your heart and his spirit is inside of you, then that is what is most important because he is preparing your heart for what God has next for you to do. And so we come back to that question that we asked at the beginning. So what does it mean to have a heart that follows after God? Well, let me answer that first by telling you what it is not, because there's always this this well-meaning advice that a lot of people give when people say, have questions like, what should I do? What decision should I make? You know, should I go out with them or not? Should I marry them or not? Should I take the job or not? And, And somebody says, well, just follow your heart. And it's just this beautiful, well-meaning advice. But let me show you this uh, cartoon that illustrates why that is a terrible piece of advice. A mom or or, or, or an older woman who is talking to a son and says, says, this is a difficult decision. In times like this, you have to learn to trust your heart. Just trust your heart, sweetie. So the boy says to his heart, okay, heart, what's it going to be? And his heart says, sin. Because left to ourselves, that's what our heart says. 
because our heart is rebellious. Our heart is far from God. Paul says it this way, the good I want to do, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Our heart follows after our own desires and our own wants and our own needs and the things that we want for ourselves. That is not what it means to have a heart after God. It means to follow your heart. To have a heart after God means that we have to have a heart that is aligned with God, conformed to him, faithful to him, to as it said in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, to have a heart that does all the will of the Lord for our lives. And that's what David does at this point forward. Not perfectly. We're going to see in some of the episodes of David's life, David's heart is not perfect. That's not the characteristic of having a heart after God, is to have a perfect heart. But it's a heart that seeks God's will and then obeys it. To have a healthy heart means to have a heart whose rhythm is aligned with God's, which means that you and I need to do regular heart checkups and to have, so to say, a spiritual pacemaker that regulates the rhythm of our heart. Because all too often living in this world, in this broken world, which gives us so many different messages and then having our own sinful desires and our own sinful flesh, our heart too easily gets out of rhythm with God's heart. And we need to have a spiritual pacemaker, the spirit that dwells in our heart to bring us into rhythm with God's heart. Because when we are in rhythm with God's heart, then we understand his heart. Because what is God's heart? Well, God's heart is a heart that said, I'm going to take my one and only son and I'm going to send him into the flesh. And the heart of Jesus was a heart that walked among us, that had compassion upon us, that healed, that forgave, that loved, that cared for. It was a heart that was willing to endure betrayal and denial. It was a heart that was willing to go through suffering, a heart that was willing to go to the cross. It was a heart that was willing to stop in death so that ours might be made new once again. That's the heart of God. And to have a heart that follows after God means to have a heart whose rhythm is in rhythm with God's heart. I love this statue. How many, I don't know how many of you have seen this statue. Any of you ever seen this statue before? Yeah. This is a statue of King David uh, sculpted by Michelangelo. If you have seen this statue before, you know why I'm only showing you the headshot. I cannot show you the rest of the statue here in church. Okay, so, so he sculpted it. There's a, a wonderful history of this statue. It was finished in 1504 by Michelangelo, but there were many sculptors who worked on this, and, and it was commissioned and recommissioned and changed over time. But after he finished this sculpture, Michelangelo was quoted as saying this. He said, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It is already there. I just have to chisel away the super, super, oh, I always get this wrong, superfluous material. I just have to chisel away what's extra. It's already there. It's in the marble. You can't see it. I can see it. It's already there. I just have to chisel away everything that's extra. Do you know what? That's what God says about our heart. I've created your heart. I've created you in the image of God. And your heart collects all this junk from the world. And it takes on all of this superfluous material and I need to chisel it away. I know, I need you to know it is more important to be chosen by God than cheered by man. 
I need you to know it is more important to be marked by God than marketable to people around us. I need you to know it is more important to be faithful to God than faithful to yourself, to be spirit-filled than self-fulfilled, to be filled with character than charisma, because that is the man of God and the woman of God that God is looking for. One who is marked by God with a heart that is after him, a heart that is in rhythm with God's heart. And that is the people of God that he is looking for. And as we look at different episodes of David's life that talk about this, or if you come on Monday night and you look at other kings in our Bible study starting this Monday from 6 till 7 o'clock, you look at other kings who were defined as kings who were after David, and David, who was after God's heart, his rhythm was in line with God's heart. You will come there and say, what does that mean for us to have a heart that, that has everything else chiseled away and is in rhythm with God's heart? Because what we come to find out is that Israel's future and David's future is a reflection of their heart. And so it is for you and for me. And so it is for grace. Our future, your future, will oftentimes be a reflection of your heart. Whether it's in rhythm with the things of this world or if it's in rhythm with the one who created it, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that all too often it is easy to have our heart in rhythm with the things of this world. But that's not the heart that you want for us. You want us to have a heart that is after you, a heart of integrity, a heart of character, a heart that is chosen and chiseled so that our heart might be in rhythm with your heart. And we know left to ourselves, Lord, that will never happen because our hearts are filled with sin, stained with sin, enslaved by sin. And if we were free to make our own choices, we would always choose sin. And so you give us your spirit in the waters of baptism through the power of your word. Your spirit fills our heart. So Lord, help us to always be in rhythm with your heart. To embrace being chosen by God rather than cheered by man. To embrace being of godly character than worldly charisma. To be embraced being marked by you rather than marketable to the people around us. Because what is most important to you is not what we look like on the outside, but who you have recreated us to be on the inside. Lord, make our hearts to be in rhythm with yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.